It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. Now, here's your host, Casey Hendrickson. Hey, good morning. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I'm your host, Casey Hendrickson. You're listening to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Got the guys from Corhorn Financial Group here, Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, Josh Gregory. Guys, what's up? Not much, man. Casey. Good cool. to be here. So we've got a, a very interesting show. Now, this is, well, it's been a busy news cycle. Uh, we've got the budget deal. John Boehner is outgoing. Of course, Paul Ryan is coming in. And we have this budget deal. And in the budget deal, there's a lot of things. There's the increase of the spending. There's, well, there's a lot of stuff. We're not going to get into all of that. We want to focus on what changes were made to Social Security. That's not getting the biggest play in the media, obviously, guys. A lot of, you know, the debt limit, spending, that sort of thing. That's getting the biggest play. But there's some pretty big changes to Social Security. Some of the stuff we've actually talked about recently on a previous show just a couple of weeks ago. So we want to come back and say, hey, now all those things that we recommended as being a way to make uh, Social Security solvent. Well, guess what? Some of them have actually happened. A lot of people are upset about some of them. A lot of people like some of them. And we do want to remind everybody, if you go to wisemoneyradio.com, you can leave your financial planning question there. You can also give us a call and leave your question at 574-222-2000. Now we've got this game of chicken that happened on the debt ceiling and the budget deal and everything else. So this thing finally at the end of October gets passed. Many people uh, assume that we just raised the debt ceiling and all that. But again, big change in Social Security. So how important is it and what impact are we talking about here and what are some of those changes, guys? So there were two really big financial planning changes baked into this deal relating to Social Security. And just like you mentioned, Casey, you can blame me. I jinxed it, maybe. I don't know. We we just did a show on Social Security, and I highlighted two unique techniques, financial planning techniques, to hopefully help some people get some more out of Social Security, get some more income. And both of those were axed on the chopping block. Right. Not only... Right after we had just done a show on Social Security highlighting these, but literally while Congress was in session voting on this thing, I was sitting in a conference room all day long teaching this very issue to some of my clients. <laughs> so so you them, broke this it. This is it's awesome. Not my fault at all. Right. So anyway, those those two strategies, though, the, the first one is the file and suspend strategy. So that idea, just real quick, is where someone can file for their social security benefits when they reach full retirement age, but then immediately suspend them. So say, hey, I want to take them and then turn them off. And that allows their benefit to continue to grow at about 8% per year. But what it does is that it, it opened up the ability for someone else, their spouse, to draw off of their earning record. So many people say one spouse would file and suspend And then the other spouse would start drawing half of that person's social security. They cut that. Now the new rule is no one, if you can still file and suspend your own benefit, but no one can draw off of your benefit once you've suspended yours. So that's the big, that's one big change. So you still can file and suspend your own payment. So yours can continue to grow at 8%, but when you do that, no one else can draw off of your earnings record. Yeah, and if you're looking for... The executive summary, Casey, you said, how big of a deal are these changes? From a financial planning perspective, these are huge changes. The interesting thing is most folks aren't even aware of these strategies and how to take advantage of them. What what strategies should I have for what we would call delay increases where I'm waiting to take my benefit or I take my benefit in a certain way? So this 
is probably a sleeper for a good number of folks. Yeah. So huge deal, lots of planning implications, but I only got through one of the big changes. So just the file and suspend. The other big change, though, is the restricted application. And that is where you can choose after full retirement age, after you reach 66 or 67, you can choose or you could choose to only draw half of your spouse's or even ex-spouse half of their social security and let yours continue to grow. Very similar to file and suspend, but different. It's it's your you're only filing based on this other person's earning record and that's done as well. They're phasing that one in. So that one technically if you're 62 or older by the end of 2015, you still could technically do that, but for anyone else that deal is going to be going away or that deal is gone where you can just say, nope, I'm, I'm only going to file off of my spouses. No, you can't do that. At any time, you'll be quote unquote deemed, which is a social security buzzword. You'd be deemed to file for either yours or half your spouses, whichever is higher. So that deal's gone too. And that point right there is maybe where some of the confusion comes for a lot of people with social security. They don't realize that if you're a, a married individual or you're divorced, or maybe you're a surviving spouse, a widow or a widower, you may be eligible for two different benefits when you get to full retirement age. And the first benefit would be the one that you earned throughout your working career. The one that, you know, as you paid into the system, you uh, qualified for this retirement benefit. You could draw that or what you're referring to is maybe drawing off of your spouse's benefit. And that's equal to half of what they're eligible for. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you, you could be eligible for one of two gave room for a lot of strategy and a lot of planning opportunities because you could get to retirement, as Mike was describing, and say, you know what, I'm going to start drawing half of my spouse's benefit and let mine keep on accruing or growing over time. The ability to do some of that creative planning, though, just got axed. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to your question, Casey, how many people are impacted now? Mm -hmm. What's this going to do to folks? Research shows that only about 100,000 people right now have been using one of these strategies. And initially I say that's that's bogus because it seems like it's always been, it's all we've been talking about with clients is this unique strategy and how to get people uh, the most out of social security. But only about 20% of people who are already on social security waited until their full retirement age to draw it anyways. So the, by far the most popular way of drawing your social security is as soon as you can stink and get it. Exactly. And, That's the default, isn't and, it? And these strategies really only worked if you were willing to wait and be patient and kind of rely on your life expectancy and living for a long time to make up for you delaying your Social Security. So, I, you know, I am starting to think maybe uh, only 100,000 people are actually taking advantage of this system. However, like I just said a moment ago, we've been talking about with all of our clients, I bet this is going to impact millions of Americans out there. Right. But we're planning on this and now have to look at a different way of, well, am I going to work longer? Am I going to do something else? How am I going to shore up my own retirement plan because of this change? Yeah. And while the media cycle has basically been focusing on, again, the debt ceiling and spending and all that other stuff and all this other stuff has been happening with Social Security and Medicare, which we'll get to in a little bit, you've been kind of on the wayside, focused mostly on the financial websites of the media and that sort of thing. So when we did the show about Social Security, part of it was, you know, explaining to people, hey, you got these amazing tips that are out there that not a lot of people, 100,000 people are using it, mm-hmm. but it's available to everybody. 
So we tell them all about it. Of course, now they go away. They're gone. Yeah. But part of that was part of that show was also meaningful ways to reform Social Security so it is solvent and long lasting and is there for future generations. Does this accomplish that in the budget deal? Or did we just basically get rid of some benefits for people and not really make any accomplishments whatsoever? I think that it's a step in the right direction. I honestly didn't see this one coming. Me neither. You know, I supposedly Obama in all of his budget uh, proposals over the past few years, he's been hinting at this, saying that he wants to cut some of the aggressive Social Security filing strategies. But again, you know, it's been how long since we've really truly had a budget operating in this in this country. But um, the issue here is that this is taking away one of the opportunities for Americans to maximize their Social Security benefits. And a lot of the articles that I have read, they tend to point the finger at, well, this is a strategy that a lot of wealthy Americans have have used. So there's almost an implied connotation that, hey, if you're an average American, don't worry, this didn't really affect you. You weren't taking advantage of it anyway. Completely disagree. I agree. I agree with you, that is. Thank you. (laughs) You're such a smart guy. the, the reason I, I disagree with the connotation of the article, though, is it implies that the, the average American wasn't going to use this strategy anyway, and I argue that they needed it most. The Absolutely. average American needs to maximize what they get out of Social Security because they're not ready for retirement on their own dime. And part of what we've been doing with this show, too, guys, is we've been trying to explain to people, you don't need to be wealthy to have a financial planner. The financial planners, I think, are one of those things that people, oh, I need a lot of money to have a financial planner. You don't. That's the point. Right. And so, yeah, wealthy people have financial planners who know about these tools, but we're doing this show so that the average American out there realizes, one, they, they don't need to be wealthy to have a financial planner. Everybody should have one. And two, that these things are available to everybody. Right. I couldn't agree with mm-hmm. you more, Casey, because what you said is you don't need to be wealthy to have a financial planner. And I would say if you want to someday be wealthy, you should be working with a financial planner. When you look at the reform that was enacted and what is it going to do for Social Security and the solvency, according to some estimates, it's going to save the system about $168 billion, with a B, over 75 years. So, in theory, that is that is going to give us a little more wiggle room. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. It'll save the system 160 what? $168 billion. It'll save the system $168 billion over 75 years. So why did they take $150 billion from Social Security and plug the Disability Insurance Trust Fund? Tune in to the Casey Henderson Show and weekdays. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I'm I've already talked about this on my show. I'm sensing a rant coming if the, on here. If the goal, hold on a second. If the goal, though, this is a government's great. If the goal is to save 160 some odd billion, but mm-hmm. it takes you 75 years to get there by taking away this tremendous benefit that Americans have, if the goal is to save 160 some odd billion dollars, why just rob $150 billion immediately over the next three years to plug the trust fund? Yeah, good point. I agree. I agree. The government needs a financial planner. You know it. No doubt. <laughs> Preach it, man. You know it. <laughs> Holy smokes. Uh, yeah, this will probably come up on today's program, too, I'm sure. Uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, we got, we're out of time here. But what we do have is we're going to talk about how maybe you should be changing your financial planning. And also, what's happened with Medicare? Because there's been some changes in Medicare as well that you all need to be aware of. Once again, I want to remind you, you're listening to Wise Money with Core and Financial Group. we got more coming up on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. This is Wise Money with Core Financial Group on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. 
Welcome back. Once again, you're listening to Wise Money with Corn Financial Group on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Once again, go to wisemoneyradio.com if you have a financial planning question for us. You can also leave a voicemail with your question there at 574-222-2000. So we've been talking about the budget deal and some of the changes with Social Security. So guys, how should people's retirement planning change as a result of these these changes in the budget deal? Great question. So if, from November 1st of this year to April 30th of next year, you're turning 66. You want to pay very close attention to the planning that you can do because that window is open for 180 days from the day that it was signed. And so if you if you are 66 or you know someone who's turning 66, they want to be revisiting their plan for how they're going to draw Social Security. So in other words, the people who... Uh, are are turning 66 inside that window, you still have some of these strategies available to you. They don't expire immediately, but it's quick. So you need to jump on it. Seek out a financial planner if you don't have one already. Find someone who can coach you through those decisions so you can rule it in or rule it out. Same with if you turn 62 before the end of this year. You still have one of these strategies still available to you, and you need to seek out a planner who can help you with this. Yeah, for the people, though, who, you know, this is going to expire and you won't get to take advantage of it. Um, we, we still have one key planning aspect or, or decision-making point, and that is when do you draw your own Social Security? And delaying your Social Security is a way to help maximize your benefits for a lot of folks. We, we've said this over and over on this show that every year you delay your Social Security, you get an 8% increase. That is meaningful. We don't have an investment under the sun that we could guarantee you an 8% increase every single year that you wait and let it grow. So this is still an important planning opportunity. Um, it, it may require that you find other ways to fund your retirement. If you retired at 60, 66, let's say, but you decide that you want to wait until age 70 to start drawing, there's a four-year gap there that you need to be paying attention to and have a game plan in mind for. All right, so what about Medicare? What are some of the changes to Medicare in this budget deal? Well, so this one, Medicare actually won a little bit, uh, or Medicare Part B users actually won. So Medicare Part B users who were paying for their Medicare out of their Social Security were not going to see an increase in their Part B starting next year. But people who were paying out of pocket for Medicare Part B were going to see about a 50% increase in what they pay for Medicare Part B. That because of this deal, has been reduced to about 18%. So the increase for your Medicare Part B premium because of this deal actually was reduced pretty significantly, pretty meaningfully. But uh, anyway, so that's a big change with, with Medicare under this deal. All right. So moving on, we've got some financial news over the past week from the Federal Reserve again. They have announced, and by the way, I mean, Bernie Sanders has been out there saying that the uh, they've been keeping interest rates low to help the President, President Obama. Uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, is uh, vying to be the next Democratic uh, presidential nominee against Hillary Clinton. Those are the two bigwigs in that party right now. Um, but now we hear from the Federal Reserve, hey, they're keeping interest rates unchanged. Is that really a big surprise to anybody? Not really. No, me neither. Oh. Uh, Bernie Sanders wisdom. right? Yes. Think so? I, I personally think that one of the biggest beneficiaries of these low interest rates over the past several years has been the federal government. You look at the amount of debt that we have and the amount of minimum interest payments that are worked into the budget, it is astounding. Last time I checked, it was something like $350 billion a year. 
just to pay the interest. That's not making any you know progress on the the actual principal or anything. So imagine what that would be if interest rates were up at a more natural or uh, historical average. And we br- we brought this up before though, Kevin. Yeah, and and I I think there are really clear winners and losers. As Joshua said, the winner, the federal government, the winner is the stock market and those people who are invested in the stock market. The people that are invested in the stock market have participated in an incredible upsurge since 2009. And if you didn't, and all you had was your wages, your wages either stayed the same or went down over this period of time. And you say, well, who else are are the big losers? And I was talking with a client yesterday who was reminiscing about the, the good old days when her dad had a CD that was paying 16%, mm-hmm. and how you didn't really have to have a bunch of money at that rate. Now, inflation was crazy at that point in time, too, but this is really, really, really the low, incredibly low interest rates has had a huge impact on retirees mm-hmm. and how they get their retirement income. Mm-hmm. Well, this is something, yeah, we, we brought this up before and we've made the prediction before that it doesn't matter who the next president is, those interest rates are probably going to climb back up. And, you know, a lot of people attribute that to the Republican Party because they've been saying, oh, look, interest is going to have to adjust at some point. But Bernie Sanders now, Democrat, is saying the same thing. So it's it's probably going to be regardless of who gets into the White House next, we're probably going to see those interest rates start to uh, start to adjust. And as they do, it creates a headwind for the stock market, for the economy, there are beneficiaries in the form of, you know, the, those who have savings in the bank are craving an opportunity to see interest rates creep at least a little bit higher, move the needle off zero somehow, and uh, a lot of retirees would be happy. But as far as economic growth, these low interest rates have been stimulative to the, go- or to the economy. So how did the markets respond to this news? And really, what's this effect going to be on the foreseeable future? Yeah. If they continue to basically stay the same. So a couple weeks ago when, when they announced no change, the market dropped about 200 points immediately. Dropped like a rock. And then immediately after that, came right back up. So I think it was a, a sign to Wall Street, uh-oh, maybe the economy is not as strong as we'd like to believe. And so there was a knee-jerk reaction on Wall Street. I mean, it just dropped immediately uh, by the minute and then came right back as they digested it. And then this past week, Jenny Yellen came out and said, hey, all signs are pointing to a December rate hike. So, and markets haven't, didn't respond too much to that. And that's because it's been conventional wisdom for a while. No one really expected to see the, the rate increase in the October meeting. The next one is in December. Yeah. A lot of people were assuming it's coming. And she just gave a little bit more of a nod in that direction. So, Okay. So what are you guys telling your clients now? Um, you know, general public also, since we're talking to people who may not be your clients necessarily yet, about how the current interest rate situation is going to influence what people do with their financial life. Yeah, we've talked about some of these ideas before on the show. Just if you've got a variable, if you've, if you've got a loan that's a variable interest rate, do what you can to lock it in. If you've got especially a variable rate mortgage or a home equity line, do what you can to lock it in. Don't abandon your emergency fund or or something like that because those interest rates are so low. So and then also just be guarded and and aware that the market could see some very interesting volatility ahead as it digests this change in interest rate paradigm. You know, we've talked in the past about refinancing your mortgage to take advantage of the low rates. I just encountered the, just yesterday actually client who had co-signed on an education loan with her daughter. And this was six years ago. And the interest rate on that loan is 14%. Mm -hmm. She was just flabbergasted when she saw it. 
the debt balance has literally more than doubled in that six-year period of time because it's been in deferment, still mm-hmm. in graduate school, that kind of thing. And so, you know, that's that's a place where it, it could be flying under the radar screen that you may have some student loan debt at higher rates than what you even imagine. And so, you know, taking a careful look at how your debt in general is structured, get it refinanced, get it restructured while interest rates are low, take advantage of the opportunity while it lasts. Yeah, and I would also say revisit the assumptions that you've baked into your retirement plan. Mm-hmm, that's a good one. Because when, when, and I've had a few of these meetings yet this week where what we're doing is we're going back to the basics and saying, hey, let's go back and look at the budget. If you wanted to spend 6000 or 8000 or 10000 whatever you whatever you wanted to spend, how far off of that are we? And when you started retirement, where were interest rates and where are they now? So how easy is it for us to generate income in order to satisfy your income needs? Do we expect to change at the next Fed meeting? I am. I'm expecting I think to change. So. Yeah. I don't think so. Okay. Moving on, coming up in the next segment, what we're going to do, guys, we're actually going to teach you how to become a millionaire. It's really the only reason you listen to this program anyway. <laughs> so we got that coming up. You're listening to Wise Money on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Welcome back. Once again, you're listening to News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Casey Hendrickson here. You're listening to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, Josh Gregory joining us. Don't forget, you can go to wisemoneyradio.com if you have a question that is a financial planning question that you would like to submit and get answered on this program. We've also set up a voicemail box so you can call in the right uh, the number right now and actually leave a message with your question. That number is 574-222-2000. So at the third Republican debate a couple of weeks ago, a few of the candidates actually talked about wage increases and how they've stalled in America. Now, this topic is obviously worsening middle class uh, in America because we've seen we talked about in the first segment of the program today, Kevin, and the debate of raising the minimum wage is constantly brought up. Can you guys comment on wage growth in America, what that means for the average consumer, the economy and the stock market? We hear about the $15 minimum wage. It was, you know, 10-10 for a while. Hillary has now endorsed a $12 minimum wage. So kind of talk about that, guys. I'm not going to speak to the, to the minimum wage stuff. I'll let Kevin do that. But I will tell you that the data suggests over the past decade, if not, I think Carly Fiorini even mentioned longer how the middle class and real wages have just been under significant pressure. And they measure real wages. So what's meant by that? That is what your actual wage is minus inflation. So after taking into account inflation. And so over the past decade, for many, well, for many occupations, their real wage has actually been negative, been gone down. This is huge. This is huge news for the overall economy and all of that. Obviously, for for middle income folks, middle America, this makes, you know, uh, this is a big deal, but even for the economy, because the American consumer drives the economy, which drives the stock market. Yeah. In fact, two thirds of our economy is driven by just you and me and everyone like us out there spending money. It's the consumer. So knowing that most people are getting poorer each day doesn't give me great hope for the overall economy and the stock market. And hamburgers are not getting cheaper. They're getting more expensive. 
And that is exactly what is meant by, you know, if if your pay stays the same for a two or three year period of time, but everything that you spend money on is getting more expensive, then effectively it's feeling like you're moving backwards in your financial life, right? That's what they mean by the real wages or inflation adjusted wages. And uh, it's important, especially for the middle class and lower income folks because they're the ones who spend the greatest portion of their income on stuff. Yeah. You know, high high uh, income families, they're less likely to spend every dime that comes in. They're going to accumulate a lot of it, reinvest a lot of it. But uh, those that are actually driving the the economy by spending money, it's mostly the middle class and and lower income families. So I'm looking at a study right here that from the National Employment Law Project that says over averaged over all occupations, the real medium hourly wage from 2009 to 2014, so five years, declined 4%. Hmm. So certain occupations are hit worse. Digging into that study, uh, full-time employees or salaried em- employees actually have seen theirs go up over the past five years, but when you average it all out, it's actually down. That is, that's alarming. Well, then you look at the extra expenses too that people have too because of taxes and insurance and that other stuff. I mean, that's less take-home pay, things are more expensive, plus your buying power is already down from the onset and it obviously creates a pretty dim picture. Yeah. Yes. And good point though, I mention this all the time with folks that we've got kids these days or this new economy, there's more expenses out there. Cell phones, internet, apps that you have to buy, all these things. These are this is new expenses. If previous generations never had to deal with this. Absolutely. And if do we want to touch the minimum wage issue at Go all? Go ahead. So my, I don't have a lot of original creative thoughts. I, m- most of my thinking uh, comes from Milton Friedman. And if you aren't familiar with him. Go to YouTube and look. Spend a couple of hours watching his videos. Absolutely. But he made a great point back in the 80s, which I thought was really instructive, which is the great thing about not having a minimum wage is that you could have a very pure trade of money for skill. I tell my kids, I I drive for carpool in the morning. I tell them almost every day. I need you to work on building skills because someday you're going to have to trade your skills for money. So if you have a low level of skill, there's not gonna you're not gonna be able to trade that for a lot of money. And if anyone can do it, there won't be a lot of money in it. So you really want to work at building your skills. And the great thing about companies like McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and these other companies, they have hired and trained people and given them their first job. Because if you've ever tried to give someone their first job, you know how uh, difficult and almost impossible that is. So the, the having a minimum wage, in my humble opinion, hurts everyone. The, 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 a minimum wage isn't meant to be a living wage. It's not meant for me to be able to... Uh, trade a, a very low level of skill for an amount of money that I can then raise a family of four or six on. It, it, it that, that was never intended to be that way. But as soon as the argument, and I saw something from Robert Reich uh, the other day, and he wrote about how capitalism is worth saving, and then he wrote basically a communist manifesto about how the minimum wage uh, should be $30,000 for a family of four, And I thought, well, if you separate uh, the trade of skill for money or what I produce, if you don't pay me uh, in proportion to what I produce, 
then yeah, pay me 30. As a matter of fact, I think anyone who was kind-hearted would say, no, instead of 30, it should be 60. Yeah, think why how, stop there, right? Yeah, think how much more you could do on 60. So we, again, we try to not discuss religion or politics on the show, but for the for the money piece. Wait, I, I missed that memo. Yeah. For, for the for the financial piece, well, I at the bottom of the memo it said pray every day for a smaller government. But um, <laughs> but I do think it's important for us to to think about these things because the folks that are out there are getting pinched, and you say, well, wait a minute, if there's this inc- if there's this compression happening, if there's this squeezing happening, if I'm if I'm on social security and I didn't get an increase for the next year, what do I have to do? My skill at dealing with my money and handling my finances has to improve. Yeah. If I didn't if I'm not getting more money and it's getting harder and harder, I have to get better and better. So this is a time for leadership and to, if you are listening right now, you are leading your own personal financial life and it is a time to step up your game. I'm I'm preaching that message to everyone who's listening and to myself. Okay, so what are some of the consequences of this stagnant wage growth that we've talked about, that limiting of the buying power and then of course is there is there a solution, you know? Kevin doesn't think that a, a higher minimum wage is the way to do that. And by the way, the numbers show that not a lot of Americans are getting minimum wage anyway, and a good chunk of the ones that are are also being supplemented through tips or commission or something yeah. of that nature. So it you know, it isn't going to be a major fix. So yeah. what are some of the solutions that are that are possible? Well, I don't know. I, I, I think this is a serious problem that is going to have serious ramifications on the long-term economy and the stock market and all of that here. So the, the fact that over the past decade, we've seen a really tough stock market, and even over the past five years, that the stock market's rebounded, but the average American's gotten poorer over that time. I think if you extrapolate that out, it's pretty dire consequences. But some of this is to be expected, right? I mean, the the economy was just absolutely rocked back in 2008. I mean, there's a reason we call this the Great Recession, right? And maybe I'm way oversimplifying this issue, but one of the reasons why there hasn't been as much wage growth is it, it goes back to the good old supply and demand that you learned about in high school economics, right? If there's an, <laughs> were you You're there? cute. You think they still teach that? You're oh, funny. Not. You're funny. <laughs> that was an elective in my school. Wow. There was like three people who took it. <laughs> you, you were supply and demand. There, there you go. go. Oh, there you go. There you go. Okay. So the, the issue, I'll give you a quick lesson then, Casey. The issue with supply and demand is if there is an oversupply of workers out there that are available to be hired because they're unemployed, then there's not going to be an upward pressure on on wages. I don't need to pay you a whole lot more because if you don't like the wages I'm offering you, then there's a whole lineup of people out the door who would love to have your job, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we were facing when we had a significant unemployment rate. Now that that's coming down... I am seeing some industries that are seeing wage uh, growth just because they have to. They have to pay people more to attract them. They're losing uh, employees to to other industries. Here in our neck of the woods, it's the RV industry that's Mm -hmm. sucking up everybody who's uh, available to, to work because they're going like gangbusters. Meanwhile, other industries are struggling to find good people. So those industries are going to start seeing, uh, you know, price of, of an, a good quality employee go up over time. And by the way, for the, for a long time in the RV industry, they were they were calling my program. They're going, we can't find people. We can't find people. We're hiring people. And then what I immediately happened after that is people would call and go, well, I keep applying, 
and they want three to five years experience uh, for twelve to thirteen dollars an hour, and I don't have any experience. I just want to work. Yep. And right. So, so if there they, they've no... now adjusted that, now they're hiring everybody. And right? that's and that's the case for a low to no minimum wage. Because those people would have experience if, if no matter what my level of skill was, I could go out in the marketplace and trade it for money today, then there would be a whole lot more people trained and able to do certain things and a whole lot more people with job experience. But as they continue to raise the minimum wage, what happens, and again, this is Milton Friedman speaking, but what happens is the employers are going to find ways to not need employees. Right. And one of the things that we're seeing today, I believe is the benefit of the incredible amounts of spending on technology yep. back at, at the at the bottom of the Great Recession where people said, okay, I, I've got just a, a, a few coins here. Where am I going to invest? And they invested it in technology. And technology is much cheaper and you get much more leverage out of technology than you do out of people. Early uh, 2015, first time in America's history that it became cheaper to actually manufacture in the United States than China. But you do that with an upfront investment of technology in your manufacturing facilities. You don't need people to do it anymore. So yeah, uh, all good points. We promise Mike's going to tell you how to be a millionaire next. <laughs> I know. We, we got off on a tangent. It, it happens, ladies and gentlemen. But Mike is going to tell you how to become a millionaire. How many millions of dollars do you have in your bank account right now, by the way? I'll tell you when, I, when okay. we come back. All right. So Mike's going to tell you how to be a millionaire <laughs> coming up. You're listening to Wise Money Radio with uh, Corn Financial Group here on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Welcome back. Once again, you're listening to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Casey Hendrickson here. I uh, got uh, Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, Josh Gregory from Corhorn Financial Group joining us. All right, so Mike, you promised you're going to tell the people how they were going to be a millionaire. I guess you ran into an article in the financial press that said how much a person needs to save every single day to become a millionaire by the time they're 65. Yeah, and just... To our listeners who stomached through those commercials, Casey, you also said I was going to say how many millions I had in my bank account. Yes. That answer is zero. Zero million dollars. So you should totally <laughs> listen to what Mike is saying I'm right saving, now. though. Hey, I'm working on this plan and, and, that and, we're going to be talking about. We're, pick, we're picking on him. But again, by the time you're 65, That's exactly become a millionaire right. by the time you're 65. Not yet 65. Yes. So there we go. But I'm working these plans. So here's why this stood out to me. A million dollars still is a lot of money and it is a it's a line in the sand even if it's just psychological a lot of people just look and aspire to becoming a millionaire and we get a lot of people who come into our office and are seeking a financial planner for the first time maybe it's the first time they've had an unguarded conversation about their finances okay and are approaching things and and sometimes again for the first time we're actually asking them what are your financial goals and for a lot of people that want to retire and so on but occasionally for a lot of millennials a lot of young folks i'd like to save up a million bucks and so this really stood out to me as uh you know just a milestone for a lot of folks but also some something kind of psychological about it in america striving to become a millionaire and as i read the article and looked at some of the figures we'll share with you in just a moment it is possible. It's possible. So I thought, yeah, we need to communicate this over the air. It's possible. You've got to do certain things. You've got to do a lot of things right. But it's possible. We're going to share some of the math here just a minute. Well, let's be it's perfectly possible. honest. If you fall a little bit short, you've still got six figures. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And that was the point I was going to make. It's possible, but is it necessary? Because if you're 58 years old and 
you know, you have a couple hundred grand accumulated. Do you need to get to a million bucks by age 65 yes. to have a comfortable retirement? Yes. Oh my goodness. For, for a lot of people, you don't need to have a million bucks saved up. And then for a lot of people, having a million bucks isn't even enough. Exactly. It's the wrong target. You got it. You know, my seven-year-old, if he's shooting for a million bucks by age 65, he's toast. He's going to be living in my basement. Yeah. Yeah. You got a nice Imagine basement. a 65-year-old living in their parents' basement. Yeah. I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm sure, sure, I'm pretty sure you won't be around. It'll be okay. <laughs> uh, good point. <laughs> no, you know, this is, it's an interesting topic because... Just yesterday, I was talking to a client, um, first time we've ever had a conversation about retirement before, and I asked him, you know, what's your target? Tell me about what retirement might look like for you. What's your lifestyle going to be? That kind of thing. And they immediately set out as their goal, well, we want to have a million dollars by age 65, exactly this article that you were talking about. And we ran the analysis. We we dug into the the details of what it's going to take for them individually to be able to live life the way they want to in retirement. And the number that they need to be shooting for is about one point four. Mm. Okay, so Only one off million forty percent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> four hundred grand. You know, that's uh, that's a rounding error. Yeah, right? no biggie. So the, the the issue here is for some people a million bucks by age sixty five is exactly the right target to be shooting for, but many people it's not. I, I think you're, you're wise to point out that this is more of a psychological milestone that a lot of folks just want to get to, yeah. but it doesn't mean that just because you hit a million bucks, you're ready for retirement. Yeah, and I think the, the, the big idea when you think about saving is the it start early, start early, start early, start early. And people have heard that before, and so we'll just say it again, start early. <laughs> when, when, when you think about it with a mortgage, if you had a, a 15-year mortgage, you're going to have a higher mortgage payment than if you had a 30-year mortgage. Well, what if you had a 40-year mortgage or even a 50-year mortgage? Ugh, don't what give if, the banks any ideas, man. Don't what, do if, what if you could save, what if you were saving money from the time that you were 20 to the time that you were 70? Yeah. And, and what, what I've seen uh, with experience is, is the the first hundred thousand, that's a there's a big there's a big emotional release there when they when someone hits a hundred thousand dollars of saving or accumulating wealth, and then it's it's game on. And how many doubles can I get on that with my remaining work life to get the right amount of money accumulated to replace my income in retirement? So if I have a great pension in Social Security and my wife does as well. I might not need a million bucks. I might have, we have clients that their fixed income through pension and social security is plenty of money and they don't, they, they're not even touching their savings except for maybe the required minimum distribution off of their retirement plan. So the, the one size fits all idea, do I need a million dollars? It really depends. Most folks will need much more than that. Most folks will never get started to get there. Yeah. So you, you, what we're talking about, though, is you really need a retirement plan, a robust retirement plan that addresses all of the variables to determine how much do you need to have saved up and, and how confident are you that the plan you're working to get ready for retirement actually works. In this scenario, though, because I'm just going to take us back here. In this scenario, though, there's when, should you, when, do you, when can you start saving? What are you going to invest in? So what return might you get? And you mentioned, Kevin, if you start saving at age 20, $9 a day. If you start saving at age 20, 9 bucks a day. If you can earn 7% on average, 
with the, st- the stock market's averaged a lot more than that, and I think that's reasonable, 7%. Nine bucks a day if you start at 20. If you're at 30, 18 bucks a day, okay? If you don't start until you're 40, now that's 40 bucks a day at a 7% rate of return. And if you're 50, if you haven't started saving, you're trying to get to a million bucks and you start at age 50, it's just over a hundred bucks a day and you need to get that 7% average return. And I would even argue if you start at 50 and you only have 15 years, getting a 7% annual return with all the ups and downs might be even harder. Starting earlier, you're much more likely to reach that 7% average annual rate of return. So I go back to the 20-year-old or 30-year-old, someone who's young. I was in Starbucks the other day behind someone who spent over $5 on their cup of coffee. I'm not kidding. So think twice about that because you can become a millionaire with just skipping a couple coffees a day. It's, it's unbelievably doable. I guess that, that was the big takeaway. And, and saying that on the backdrop of us talking about how the average middle-income person or middle America is, is getting poorer, it's still extremely possible to save up the right amount with the right discipline, start early, and become a millionaire. Yeah, and the tough thing is the people that do it and do it well make it look easy. So your assumption is it's easy. And what we're talking about is incredibly difficult. Get a coach. Building these habits, very tough. Yep. Get a coach. Get a plan. Start early. Yep. It's possible, but it's going to hurt. Yeah. Yeah. But it all depends on... Yep. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like we talk about, you know, delaying gratification, yep. you know, for something, something different uh, down the road. The first week in the gym hurts too, but after that, it's, it's a, a little bit easier. Yep. And you'll end up discovering that, you know, five to fifteen dollar cups of coffee are they taste like garbage anyway, and they make you fat. <laughs> all right, guys, we appreciate it. Uh, one again, remind everybody go to wisemoneyradio.com. You get all the previous episodes. In fact, we encourage you to go back and listen to the Social Security episode. And then listen to this one again. That's right. So you realize all the changes that happened that we went over in the first segment. Uh, but at wisemoneyradio.com, if you have a financial planning question, you can also give us a call. And again, that's 574-222-2000. Leave a voicemail question for us, and we will address that on a future program. And again, thank you. Uh, if you by the way, you need a financial planner. Everybody's going, okay, I totally need a financial financial planner now. Corhorn.com, Corhorn with a K. And you can link up with the guys here from Corhorn Financial Group and actually get your uh, retirement and your financial planning situation all uh, all ready to go. All right? Maybe even Mike will help you become a millionaire. Who knows? There you go. All right? <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Wise Money on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. We'll see you next week. Securities are offered through Securities America, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Financial advisors offer advisory services through KFG Wealth Management, LLC, doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC, Corhorn Financial Group, KFG Insurance Agency, and KFG Tax and Business Services are separate entities from Securities America, Inc. Tax services provided by KFG Tax and Business Services and insurance services provided by KFG Insurance Agency. Listen again next week to Wise Money on News Talk 95.3 Michiana's News Channel.